Welcome to the second Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I discuss how to cut weight for powerlifting, how to train during a caloric deficit, the acceptability of putting pineapple on pizza, and much, much more. Remember, if you want your questions answered on a future episode, check out the links in the episode description below. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. This is your host, Eric Trexler, with temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles, and we are ready to roll tonight. We just got back from a second place finish in trivia. Um, a lot of unforced errors. Probably should have pulled out the win, but uh, second is better than usual for us, so we'll take it. But right now, I've got the perfect mixture of Diet Cokes and IPAs in my system, and I'm ready to answer some questions. How you feeling, Greg? Feeling good. All right. Let's get into it. First question by Juan Pierre. My question pertains to both true strength, one to five reps, and getting stronger in the eight to 12 rep range. Very judgmental use of the term true strength there. Yeah. Very dismissive of of higher rep ranges. Yeah. So he continues, according to what I currently know, these training parameters elicit certain fiber types and energy systems to be more dominant during their own phases. My question is, due to those differences, is there any carryover or need to develop strength in the 1 to 5 rep range in order for that strength to be carried over into the 8 to 12 rep range? Uh, The way I see it is that getting stronger in the 8 to 12 range would have better returns on hypertrophy compared to first getting stronger in the 1 to 5 rep range uh, due to these energy systems requiring different stimuli, energy systems and fiber types. Oh, man. So there's... There's several layers to this. Um, One assumption here seems to be that different rep ranges train different uh, predominant fiber types to different degrees. Another assumption seems to more or less be that getting stronger will either cause you to get bigger or at least help you get bigger. Um, So I'm, I'm going to first address those two assumptions. The assumption that getting stronger will help you get bigger, I don't think is honestly that well supported. Um, So there is a pretty good rationale for getting bigger to help you get stronger. Just as you hypertrophy, especially myofibrillar hypertrophy, you gain more contractile tissue, that should help you produce more force, lift heavier weights. So in terms of like... That, that directionality, getting bigger, should help you get stronger. In terms of getting stronger, helping you get bigger, I'm not... I don't think the experimental evidence really supports that. Um, so if you... If you conceptualize of strength as kind of an interplay between structural factors, which would primarily just be muscle size, but architecture may fit in there a little bit as well, uh, because that can adapt with training, maybe like soft tissue adaptations. If you look at it as an interplay between those factors and like neural factors, um, with strength basically being the product of those two things, then like essentially... I don't, I don't see a good reason to then assume that getting stronger is going to help all of those other things. Like they, like, or at least like developing further neural ad- adaptations will help those other things. As long as your nervous system is to a point that you can actually recruit all or most of your motor units and take an exercise close enough to failure before form breaks down that you can like stimulate most of the muscle tissue. 
I don't think I, I can't think of a strong argument in favor of neural adaptations from low rep training helping with developing further muscle mass. And I, I don't think the experimental evidence is really there to support it either. If you look at the research on like comparing high load and low load training, people get way, way stronger if they train with heavier loads versus if they train at like 30, 40% one rep max. But the hypertrophy seems to be pretty similar. So so I, I just don't necessarily think that getting stronger is going to help you get bigger. I think more so if you're training for hypertrophy, you will also build some strength just as a, you know, a, a natural byproduct of accruing more contractile tissue. But I think the causality there is primarily getting big, helping you get strong, and not necessarily getting strong, primarily here being neural adaptations, necessarily helping you get bigger. Then the other assumption being that um, different fiber types contribute more or less to different rep ranges and different styles of training. There's also not great evidence for that. The The only really clear, strong evidence I've seen um, that I actually trust is from a recent paper out of, I believe, Norway, one of those Scandinavian countries, but I, I believe Norway, where they had powerlifters do dedicated blocks of low load training with blood flow hypertrophy. And they saw pretty clear preferential type 1 fiber hypertrophy in those studies. The next strongest evidence probably comes from a Russian group, uh, two main researchers there being Natriba and Vinogradova. And there's, I, I don't necessarily want to get into it too much here and now, but there's some, there's some methodological issues in those studies and there are some issues in the methods that I simply don't think are physically possible um so i'm i'm very skeptical of those studies so so basically there's very scant evidence that like fiber type specific hypertrophy with different rep ranges is an actual thing and the strongest and most direct evidence that we do have was on a specialized population powerlifters who you know maybe have accrued preferential type 2 fiber hypertrophy over the years from doing like very very specialized training and maybe could get like some catch-up growth in their type 1 fibers but but that's like that's a very special case compare that to a study by morton et al where they had people trained but more like intermediate type lifters training in the 8 to 10 rep range versus like 20 to 30 rep range uh that study found really no preferential fiber type hypertrophy at all like similar growth in both the type 1 or similar growth between groups in type 1 and type 2 fibers so yeah like i'm still i'm still skeptical of like different rep ranges affecting different fiber types differently in terms of growth i'm skeptical of that whole whole idea being true in the first place except under like special circumstances so my, my thought here is kind of that you may just be overthinking it. I do think that strength in the 8 to 12 rep range is a decent proxy for size, assuming you're like controlling training variables. So, you know, if you do a block of powerlifting specific training where volume's not crazy high, but intensity's super high and you 
get some neural adaptations. That bumps your one rep max up. Now that bumps your eight to 12 rep max up. Maybe you're not going to gain much size in the process doing that, but if you're training mostly in moderate rep ranges and you're also getting stronger in moderate rep ranges, the assumption there is you're not doing specialized training that's going to cause a lot of additional neural adaptations. So their gains in strength will be more just kind of reflective of continued increases in size. And so so basically, to answer your question, one, no, I don't really think you need to do low rep training to boost strength in an effort to increase size. Um, and I don't really think you need to worry about fiber type specific adaptations in the first place. Uh, I think that that basically... If you want to cover all of your bases, do the majority of your training, like, you know, between two thirds and three quarters in the traditional hypertrophy range of maybe like six to 15 reps per set. If if you think that maybe the low rep stuff may be better for type two fiber hypertrophy, like, yeah, whatever, throw in some triples from time to time. If you think that the really light high rep stuff may be a little better for type one fiber hypertrophy, like... Sure, throw in a couple sets of like 20 bicep curls or knee extensions or something at the end of a workout. But for the most part, I think that, yeah, like strength gains in that moderate rep range are are more, are, are fairly reflective of increases in size as long as that is where you're doing most of your training. And I don't necessarily think you need to, to overthink it too much past that point. And just to clarify, you're basically saying no one's missing out on hypertrophy leaving gains on the table because they neglected the lower rep ranges but that doesn't necessarily mean someone can't achieve very good hypertrophy using those those lower rep ranges right oh for sure for sure um i mean i mean i i think like on a per set basis you're probably going to get a little less growth from training in lower rep ranges like you certainly can still grow it's just going to be a little bit less efficient and so, you know, take more sets, more time in the gym. Yeah, yeah, you're going to if if you want to get a similar hypertrophic stimulus from the entire session, it's probably going to take more time in the gym to do that. Or if you're like equating for time in the gym, you're probably going to get a little bit less growth per session. Uh, but like if you if you like training like that, it's still perfectly fine. But yeah, you you probably shouldn't then assume that if you do a block of powerlifting specific training and you get stronger in the eight to 12 rep range as you're doing that, that that's necessarily reflective of a bunch of additional hypertrophy. So I've got a brief anecdote. I know the Q and a episodes are all business, so please forgive me, but I did a, a dreamer bulk when I was in college and a dreamer bulk. If you're not familiar with the terminology is when you get fat as hell and convince yourself that you're actually putting on a ton of muscle. And the lie that I had genuinely believed and talked to myself into was that as I was gaining this weight, because my max deadlift kept going up and up and up, surely these were very, very lean gains because look how strong I'm getting. And um, this, I was very young at the time and very, very stupid. And it wasn't until one day my roommate was like, hey, Eric, um, I just wanted to let you know that I've noticed you've become quite fat. And I, I don't know if anyone else is honest enough to tell you, but you should really reconsider the way you're doing things. And so, uh, Nick, if you're out there, thank you for having the courage 
and the the warm heart to tell me that I was looking like a mess. But yeah, it, you got to be very, very careful when you're trying to use strength as a proxy for hypertrophy. Uh, like you said, it, it's got to be very specific circumstances where you can actually make that leap in, in terms of trying to correlate the two. Yeah, and, and, and ju- just to reiterate one more thing, the idea that training in different rep ranges elicits specific hypertrophy of different fiber types so namely that training with lower rep ranges is going to cause more type 2 growth and training with higher rep ranges is going to cause more type 1 growth like i said that that's something that people assume just based on the fact that type 1 fibers are less fatigable so maybe they're going to be a little bit more involved in like high rep stuff and vice versa with type 2s but I kind of think that you're covering all of your bases training in an intermediate rep range because for the most part, those weights are going to be heavy enough that most of your motor units are going to be recruited from the very first rep. And certainly by the time you are approaching the point of failure, all of your motor units will have been recruited. Um, And especially if you're talking about more like the lower intensity end of that range so maybe like sets of 10 to 15 that may be getting to the point where it's where it's light enough that you kind of have some motor units cycling in and out which which can be indicative of the fact that your type 1 fibers that you recruited initially in the set may have like reached the point of failure and more motor units need to be cycled in to pick up the slack so so i essentially everything's everything's coming to the party everything is being exposed to some level of fatigue in the process so i think i just don't think you need to worry about specific fiber fiber type specific hypertrophy uh to any meaningful degree and and five years from now there may be a lot more research and i'll have to eat my words and and we will have a very clear view of fiber type specific hypertrophy based on different uh, training parameters, but we're just not there yet, and I, I'm skeptical that it occurs to a large enough degree for 99% of people to need to worry about. Okay, so our next question here is from James Wilson Arencibia. Uh The question is, when on when on a calorie restriction, what does the research say in terms of muscle loss and training approach? Question mark. Intensity over volume? Question mark. Volume over intensity? Question mark. Or just make sure you keep the weights the same on the bar? Question mark. So essentially, when you're when you're in a calorie deficit, uh, how should you train to try to minimize muscle loss? Um, should you try to prioritize volume more? Should you try to prioritize intensity more? Um, what's going to give you the best bang for your buck for, for maintaining muscle master in a cut? Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of the name of the game when it comes to bodybuilding and, you know, physique and those types of competitions where you want to lose fat, which means you're going to be in a deficit and you're trying to hold on to as much muscle as you realistically can. This is also one of those areas where smart people will actually still disagree. Um, You know, there's a lot of topics that pretty much everybody in the evidence-based fitness world, they're going to agree on it because there's a pretty decent amount of literature from which to draw conclusions. And 
usually when we're in that case, people can pretty much just sort out what is, what does the literature say? And, and there's usually some lingering kind of tertiary questions that exist, but it's pretty much agreed on. This is one of those questions where there's not a ton because it's a pretty specialized instance of we've got people who are already muscular and strong. They're going into this deficit and there are, there are studies looking at like, how do we maintain aerobic fitness adaptations on reduced volume or, or by scaling things back? Same thing in strength, significantly less when it comes to straight up muscle mass. Now, an analogous situation is looking at aerobic training adaptations. And what you see is to build up a really solid base of aerobic fitness, you pretty much have to put in the mileage. You, you got to do the volume to get up to a, to a pretty legit base of aerobic fitness. But what we also find is during periods of detraining, if you maintain a little bit of high intensity effort, even with a drastically reduced volume, you actually do a pretty good job retaining a lot of those adaptations that were built by volume. There are also studies showing that when it comes to strength outcomes during times of, uh, of substantially reduced activity or training volume, even just a little bit of high intensity work can help preserve a lot of the strength adaptations. Whereas if you, if you didn't include that high intensity work, the D training would have happened substantially more, more rapidly. I am inclined to believe that muscle mass probably follows a similar pattern that, you know, in an ideal world, you would maintain your volume and your intensity, but that's not going to happen for, for 99% of people. So the question is, what's going to give? Is it going to be your training volume or is it going to be your intensity? Because of those other patterns with different types of training adaptations, I, I'm inclined to believe that muscle mass would follow a similar kind of pattern, but more importantly, when I think of, you know, the extreme, when you're deep into a contest prep, what are you realistically going to be able to do? So if you're deep in contest prep or very far into a weight loss diet, or you just have a very large caloric deficit, glycogen depletion is your life now. Like this is who you are and how your life exists. Like you do not have the glycogen to dig in for several sets of 12 to 15 reps. They're not going to happen. And if you talk to somebody who's been on kind of like a in, a, in a pretty depleted state, whether it's acutely or chronically, it's the, the damnedest thing, but you're, you're doing these sets and you're like, okay, time to crank out 12 and you get to seven and they're just gone. And it, you don't have that normal, like, acidosis burn that's kind of telling you okay the set's about to end it's just gone and so it's pretty wild when you it's almost like the lifters equivalent of bonking or hitting the wall you hear a lot of endurance athletes say once their glycogen depletes it's like they feel like they ran into a brick wall there's a very similar thing when you're in a pretty depleted state so when i structure my training for you know either when I'm chronically or even acutely severely depleted, I, I try to account for the fact that, you know, glycogen depletion is probably going to be there. And uh, there's some really cool research showing that glycogen, even if you're not fully glycogen depleted, uh, glycogen depletion happens in a non-uniform manner. And there are different localized regions within the muscle cell where glycogen gets stored. And when we deplete glycogen, it seems to get depleted uh, 
most readily or, you know, the, the first storage of glycogen to go from muscle is the storage that occurs right near the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And so when we initiate a muscle contraction, the sarcoplasmic reticula let go of a bunch of calcium, which is really the key cellular event dictating the the generation of muscular force. Mm-hmm. Um, so once that glycogen gets depleted, it looks like that starts to interfere with calcium release, which interferes with force production, which is you no longer completing reps, basically. Well, and, and something else you said there was interesting. So you said that like, it's just gone before like the acidosis burn starts setting in. Yeah. The second site of glycogen depletion is the intramyofibrillar stores of, uh, of glycogen. So essentially like if you need to shift into anaerobic glycolysis to get some quick ATP to your, to your myosin heads, that's the second thing to go. So like calcium handling starting to, to go down a downhill slide. That's not good. And then not even being to get be, being able to get ATP like to the myosin ATPase. Like that's also not good. And yeah. so so like yeah, th- th- those are those are the two like primary driving things determining like can I maintain force output during a set? Yeah. And and regardless of how depleted you are, like those are the first places glycogen goes from. And if you're generally glycogen depleted, you just have less work you can do before those two localized glycogen stores are gone. Right. And so for me, I think based on the evidence available and based on the theoretical rationale, I try to say basically, how can I try to preserve some decent amount of training volume uh, while not being overly reliant on glycogen stores that realistically aren't going to be there for me to lean on. And so what that ends up looking like is essentially slashing the volume a little bit, primarily by shifting toward lower rep ranges. And the goal is that in the process of doing that, theoretically, you can at least say, well, volume has has been cut a little bit, but I'm still lifting some reasonably heavy loads. Um, So that's always been my approach to it. And I have heard people argue the alternative. And and they've basically said, well, and all that heavy lifting when you're really, really depleted, you're probably going to get hurt. You're probably not going to be able to recover from it. But I, I think the lesser of two evils would be to let some of that basically cut out the real high rep stuff. Um, so shift toward lower rep ranges. And if you're absolutely dying, like way late in prep, then you start getting into slashing some of the some of the BS accessory volume that realistically isn't doing a ton for you. So my 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 short answer is I, I try to cut out any kind of volume that's not really, really making major contributions. So if I can just slide in here with a sweltering hot take. Oh boy. <laughs> I I kind of think so so one, I think something we both have to acknowledge is there's no research on this whatsoever. Right. Um one of the reasons this is such a topic of debate is, shockingly, I would say, of the many questions that have been investigated in the exercise science literature, whether higher volume or higher intensity training is better for maintaining muscle mass during a calorie deficit with like a chronic training study setup. Uh, no one has ever done that before. 
So it is so contentious because we don't have like direct evidence to fall back on and say like, well, look, someone did this study and here's what they found. So kind of my sweltering hot take is one of the things you see with calorie deficits. And, and, and this is coming from just general training studies when people are in deficits and also from like the numerous case studies that have been done on natural bodybuilders and natural physique athletes. It seems like people are more or less fine and can maintain muscle mass just fine going from like normal body fat levels to normal levels of leanness. And then just like when people go from lean to super lean, everyone just loses muscle. Like it's pretty much inevitable. And so I I kind of think that I kind of think that as long as you're doing something to maintain a stimulus, to maintain some of that muscle mass you have left, you're you're basically covering your bases. And past that point, like some of the muscle is going to go, but you're maintaining a stimulus to hold on to some. And like the details of that stimulus probably don't matter too much. And when I heard your answer, it sounded like you were more describing the type of training you could get in and still feel good about without just like hitting a wall and shit just falling off super, super hard. Uh, whereas like just purely in terms of what's going to to present your muscles a stimulus, I mean, if you did a weight that you could typically do for a set of 15 and you do like 15, 9, 4 or something like that because you hit that wall, I still think you'd probably be giving your muscles an adequate stimulus you would just kind of feel shittier about it and and so i i see the question more as like what type of training can you do and maintain and feel good about to maintain some level of stimulus versus specifically what that stimulus is i i could see that that being the case this is one of those questions that you you hear really you hear really experienced bodybuilders and scientists kind of argue about it in that weird circle of like four people who are <laughs> competitive bodybuilders who give a <laughs> damn about, <laughs> about this question. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's a clear cut answer. I, I do think it, at, at the end of the day, it's getting in there and doing something that's hard and not a complete waste of your time. And I, I think it's the waste of your time factor where like, you're right realistically in that scenario it's probably a fine stimulus but it does feel pretty stupid to pick up a very lightweight and do four (laughs) so so i think almost it's almost like preserving some kind of semblance of like tricking yourself into thinking this set's gonna matter you know what i mean like i'm I'm doing good work here yeah but um but yeah that that's that would be my approach to that particular question i know a lot of smart people who would disagree with me and that's totally fine next question is from patrick he says uh what is the best training approach for explosive athletes i I train parkour and free running i've been doing some complimentary weight training in in the gym it'd be interesting uh, to hear your opinion on building a strong base for a discipline like parkour which is mainly explosive and jumping and stuff like that that's a good question. So there there are several things to consider here. One is, so a common approach, which I don't think is the best approach, 
is when you're talking about explosive stuff, you're you're primarily talking about power output uh, in different planes, and, and primarily there you're talking about building up to the highest takeoff velocity possible on jumps, which which is correlated with power output, but isn't exactly the same as power output. Uh, but anyway, so one of the common approaches you'll see, and and this is one of the reasons why there's a ton of research published on this, is people will argue like, oh, that's power output, so uh, principle of specificity, like let's apply this here. Let's find what loads are associated with the highest power outputs, and let's train with those loads, and that therefore will increase power output and explosiveness. And And yeah, there's dozens of studies with different exercises and different populations like looking to see like oh if we plot power with respect to intensity where where do we see like the peak in like the power intensity curve and usually it's like kind of very intermediate intensity so anywhere from i've seen as low as 30 percent one rep max for some exercises but that that's quite on the low end but generally somewhere in like the 40 to 70 percent one rep max range is is where power output is maximized. Uh, so people say, oh, principle of specificity, like that's that's where we're going to train. Um, there's more recent research looking more at training your weakness on the force velocity spectrum. So essentially, if you plotted the relationship between uh, force output and velocity, it's going to be like, a straight line with a negative slope such that as as force output increases velocity decreases and vice versa and power output is going to be maximized somewhere in the middle of that curve uh, being being the product of those two factors um, and one of the things we see is like that line is pretty much just straight like that that force velocity um, continuum and so rather than training for power, which is in the middle of that line, what you would have better bang for your buck doing is figuring out which end of that line is holding you back and kind of pull on that end of the line. And so if you're strong but generally slow, like if, you're, if your maximal velocity with no load isn't great, then you would do more like pure velocity stuff. So we're talking body weight, like plyometrics, maybe really, really light weights, maybe even like lightened type stuff. So we're talking like using something like a reverse band setup to jump with less than your body weight so you can achieve higher takeoff velocities. So training the very far extreme velocity end of that spectrum versus if someone is already quite fast but weak, then you would try to pull out on the strength end of that curve and try to get them stronger. And so essentially, this this would make more sense if this was like in video format or like in an article. But why don't you do movements and I'll narrate uh, with extreme detail? I'll, I'll I'll try to do it. So you have like ideally you want to have a line that is sloping down that intersects both the x and y axis at a 45 degree angle such that it forms a right triangle if there is a shallower slope meaning that force is high but velocity is low you want to pull up on the side of that line that's on the y axis to kind of even it out more 
or if it's more of a steeper slope so that peak velocity is high but peak force is low, you want to pull out on the line where it intersects the x-axis to increase force output. What both of those things are going to do is increase like the elevation in the middle part of that line where power output is maximized, and that therefore increases explosive performance. And and this isn't just theoretical, like there's research looking at this. So when we profile people and we identify the low force people versus the low velocity people, and we put them on a program that's tailored to training the extreme end of that force velocity spectrum where they suck, compared to a group of people who are just put on like a high power program where which is training like the middle part of that relationship. Uh, the people who are put on a program that is specific to where they're bad have larger increases in power output and jump height than the folks who train with loads that actually maximize power output. So yeah, that that is the first thing I would look at. Um, just kind of profile yourself. Um, and I could we, we could we could link a paper in the show notes that that details how you would go about doing that. Uh, and kind of give some backup to to what I've just been rambling about. But yeah, so profile yourself, figure out what you're bad at. If you're strong but slow, work on increasing peak velocity. If you're fast but weak, just work on getting stronger. And that's probably going to give you the most bang for your buck. Second thing is for someone doing parkour or really anything that's like heavily, heavily plyometric like that. Uh, one thing you need to potentially be concerned about is injury risk because when you're coming down from extreme heights and trying to absorb that force, you need a tremendous amount of eccentric strength to do that. So I wouldn't, I think it would probably be a pretty good idea to do like eccentric training, like eccentric overload training, just to make sure you have like a big enough eccentric strength reserve that you can one, like acutely keep yourself safe and not sustain an acute injury, but chronically to to reduce some of the wear and tear of that rapid eccentric loading. Uh, I find that the two, I, I find that the easiest way to get like eccentric overload stuff is just doing stuff in a gym with a partner and either you load a lot of weight um and like your partner helps you get the weight up and then you lower it yourself eccentrically under control or the other way around where you have a generally light weight that you're lifting and you lift it up yourself and then your partner like pushes down on the way down to to cause an eccentric overload or um if you're by yourself a lot of exercises allow you to do the concentric with like both limbs and the eccentric with just one limb. So take a knee extension, for example. You could do the eccentric part with just one leg, and then use both legs to kick back up to the top for the concentric to essentially allow you to to lift heavier weights than you typically would be able to with just one leg and, and get some eccentric overload. Um, so I, I think that regardless of which side of the force velocity spectrum you fall on, getting some specific like eccentric overload work would probably be a pretty good idea for longevity. But in, in terms of pure performance, uh, the, the force velocity profiling stuff is very, very clutch. Find what you're bad at and focus on improving that. And that that's probably what's going to give you the most bang for your buck. And it's, it's going to be different person to person. Yeah, I would say in the strength and conditioning world, specificity is one of those things where you find people 
kind of missing the mark on both sides mm-hmm. of the spectrum. So there's like there's like a small but somewhat vocal group of people who it's like, listen, if you squat heavy sets of five, surely you'll be physically prepared for whatever life might throw at you. You know, like they're, <laughs> yeah. they're the complete yeah. non-specific. Just if you if you can squat, pull and press well, you're going to be fine. And for a lot of sports and activities, that just doesn't make sense. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where people are like obsessed with specificity. And so they're like, well, whatever my actual activity is, I'm just going to load it. Mm-hmm. And so what they act inadvertently do is make an explosive athletic movement into a slow, trained to be slow, slightly more resisted movement, yeah. which again is not helpful. Like when you see somebody doing like, weight resisted punches oh, man. just training themselves to punch slowly well I, I mean so so like it depends um if the loading is small enough that it's just introducing like a small change like that can be good so like uh, a classic example here is like resisted sprints if you just load a little weight on a weight sled and sprint against it that that can help people improve speed uh or if on the opposite side of things if you want to do like downhill sprinting for overspeed work like a slight decline can be good but sometimes people can take it too far and it's like okay let's sprint down a 30 degree incline or let's load up like 400 pounds on a pulling sled and pull it at four miles an hour and say it's speed training right yeah moving on this is a really controversial one i'm kind of hesitant to uh get on the topic zach asks us does pineapple belong on pizza what do you think, Greg? Oh, for sure. Really? Yeah. Are Are you against pineapple on pizza? I mean, and by the way, for those who are listening, if if you don't know this, Greg is definitely the culinary expert of, of the the team here. He's uh, quite an expert in the kitchen, honestly. Um, my thing about pineapple on pizza is, I think that people should have the freedom and the right. To put pineapple on a pizza, but I don't want anything to do with it. I, I don't like any sweet ingredients being, and there's too much moisture too. Too sweet, too much moisture. So, one, I think it depends kind of what your what your idea of a pizza is. I mean, it, it could be a, an utterly ludicrous proposition if you have the idea of pizza that's like a traditional Italian pizza. That's just like sauce, cheese, and like maybe basil. And the sauce also isn't super traditional. A lot of times it's just cheese and basil. And sometimes it's it's literally just sauce. Like that that is a traditional thing as well. Yeah. Um, so really when you're getting to toppings past that, then, then you're already getting away from a lot of what a lot of people's like platonic ideal of a pizza is. Uh, but I think if you're talking about like Americanized pizza, I don't think there's anything that particularly strange about it. Like essentially you're you're trying to balance some sweetness with some savoriness, often with like a little bit of heat as well. You know, a little bit of red pepper flake, a little bit of heat from like charcuterie. And so like with... And especially, like, if we're talking, like, just straight up, like, American pizza, oftentimes you're dealing with a pretty sweet tomato sauce. 
Like a, a traditional tomato sauce is typically like literally just tomato, sometimes tomato and like a little basil, garlic, a little salt, maybe a little olive oil, but certainly any sweetness that's going to come from it is just going to be from the tomato. Uh, most American tomato sauces you'd put on a pizza are, are pretty heavily sweetened already. And so, so you have like more of an aggressive interplay between like sweetness and saltiness already between the salt and the cheese. And so like, yeah, I, I think it just depends on the style of pizza. Like, would I put pineapple on a Neapolitan pizza with like just plain tomato sauce and like a little mozzarella and some basil and fucking pineapple? Hell no. That it doesn't work in that context at all. Yeah. But if you're talking like what you're gonna get in most American pizza joints, like it fits right in. Like it it, it adds another sweet element to the dish. Uh, especially if you're balancing it off of, uh, like the most common thing it would be paired with is is Canadian bacon, which is like that adds another salty element balanced out by the sweet element of the pineapple. Like I, I don't, I, I don't think in that context it's that out of left field. So just to give context, my pizza background, most of the pizzas I've bought in my life came from a place in Columbus, Ohio that operated out of a gas station. Um, so maybe I just wasn't getting the most fresh pineapple. Maybe that's the problem. Wait, you were getting like frozen pineapple? I don't know. Well, first of all, I, I wasn't ordering it there, but I, I don't have faith that that would have been a fun experience. Oh, oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Now on to an actual <laughs> somewhat relevant food question. Pedro asks, chicken wings, thighs, or breast? And I know we're going to disagree on this. Um. So, so I... I know Pedro, and I feel like I know what Pedro would say. Um, me and my wife and Cody Lefevre actually stayed at Pedro's place for a night in San Diego back when I lived in California. Uh, and he took us on just an utterly fantastic bar crawl of San Diego. Like, we, start, we started drinking probably at 11 a.m. and were at it until, like, late that night. And San Diego is such a good beer town. Anyway, um, that, that makes me tired just hearing that. It was great. Like I'm, I'm so old that when I he hear the concept of drinking for like 13 hours, I'm like already sleepy. No, I mean like for me, it's one of those things that like if I'm gonna do it, I'm probably not gonna drink for like the next month because like <laughs> yeah. just the concept of beer stops being appealing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, from time to time, I think it's fun. Anyways, so we got to his place the night before, and when we arrived, he made us some lemongrass wings, which were fantastic. So based on that experience, and, and due to how good he is at cooking wings, I feel like Pedro is a wing guy. And my personal answer here is it kind of depends on the preparation method. So I like chicken. I eat a lot of chicken. If I'm going to eat chicken in like a degenerate way, where it's like I'm eating this purely for the like hedonic pleasure that comes from it, I, I'm I'm definitely going with wings. If I'm doing meal prep and I want something that's like reasonably healthy and easy to cook and I can make a lot of it and it's still going to be like tasty in my fridge after being in there for like five or six days, then it's going to be thighs. Like, boneless, skinless thighs are good. Like, they're 
certainly not as lean as breasts, but like they're pretty lean. Like they're they're leaner than most cuts of lean beef, which I don't think a lot of people realize. They hold on to moisture really well. They're really easy to to grill without drying out. They're really easy to bake without drying out. They keep really well in the fridge. Um, of the three options, I definitely eat more thighs than anything else. But then if I'm being like really bougie and making like a chicken meal for myself and my wife, my go-to is probably going to be like a spatchcock roasted chicken or maybe like a whole smoked chicken. And when you do it up like that, the breast can be absolutely fantastic. Uh, if you're cooking it low and slow or especially smoking it low and slow um, and like the fat from under the skin can seep into the breast uh, and you spatchcock it. So what that means is you just cut the spine out of the bird uh, so you can like lay it down flat so it, it cooks a little faster. You can you can keep it in gentle heat, not for an incredibly long amount of time. So the breast is still lean, but you don't cook the water out of it. So it's still like really moist. And when I'm actually going to take the time to make roast chicken, I think I actually prefer the breast to the thigh. So yeah, much like the pizza answer, just kind of context dependent and in what you're trying to get out of the chicken and how you feel like cooking it and how much effort you feel like putting into cooking it. I'm glad you ended with the effort part. Um, (laughs) So anyone who knows me knows that as a bodybuilder, I'm not big. I'm not particularly muscular, but the thing that allows me to get by in bodybuilding is that I'm very lazy in the kitchen and I have impossibly low food standards. So for me, chicken wings, thighs, or breast, always breast. Put it in the crock pot, come back to it some number of days later, and it is cooked. And here's what you can do, Greg. You want uh, an exciting Italian meal? What you put in it is... Excuse me. What you put... (laughs) Shredded chicken uh, with a marinara sauce and a light layer of mozzarella cheese on top you got an italian dinner now if you wanted to have like a mexican night a shredded chicken uh some diced peppers and you put some salsa on top um it's really kind of shredded chicken breast is the canvas upon which you paint a meal and with the right canned sauce or condiment you can go wild you can make that meal whatever you need it to be And I am genuinely not kidding. I've had tacos for lunch every day for the last probably six weeks. And sometimes when I'm feeling very spicy, I will put uh, riced beets in my my shredded chicken tacos. That's about as as wild as I get. So yeah, if you're out there and you're thinking, if you heard Greg's answer and you're like, God, that sounds like a lot of work. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just make make chicken breast in a crock pot. You're going to be fine. I mean, it's not that hard to roast a chicken. It's just like, it's a little more work to spatchcock it. But like, it's still not hard. I had never heard that word until three minutes ago when you said it. It's just a, it's just a classy way of saying you take some kitchen shears and cut the spine out. I'm just saying. Because that sounds morbid. If I spend more than 15 minutes putting a meal together it's because somebody interrupted me for five minutes (laughs) but anyway that i i very much respect uh how skilled you are in the kitchen and the time you put into it um and i very much enjoy that i get to 
reap the rewards of that every Sunday night when we have dinner. But anyway, there's two very different opinions, uh, none of which are evidence-based, about how you should make your chicken purchases. Okay, next question is from Alex. If I have to cut weight for a powerlifting meet, what's the best way to go about it in terms of performance? Uh, Let's say I'm 10 pounds over and I have 16 weeks to go. It's probably a good spot to be in. Option one, slow cut a pound per week starting about eight to 10 weeks out. So basically chill for a while and then just do a pound a week leading into the show. Option two, do that cut the first eight to 10 weeks and then just maintain weight going into the show. And then option three would be just chill for 15 minutes and do a big water cut at the end. I'll take a a crack at this and then I want to hear your thoughts on it after, Greg. My, My thing about water cuts my concern is you you don't want to just throw that in not knowing how you perform mm-hmm. in that context. So there are some people that can do a, a sizable water cut and still perform pretty well. Everybody's got a number that it's like if I water cut X number of pounds, I'm fine. If I cut X plus one, I'm done. Like I'm screwed. Yeah. So you, you, you want to make sure that it's almost like with bodybuilding with a peak week strategy, you never want to try it the first time when it matters. So um, generally speaking, I don't advocate particularly large water cuts. And that that goes back to when I coached wrestlers. I, I didn't like my wrestlers doing large water cuts. And I, I often just advised against them. So with powerlifting, it, it depends on your body size. It depends how well you can accommodate water cuts. But for me... If, if I was a person competing around... And, and it depends whether you're doing a meet with a two-hour weigh-in or a 24-hour weigh-in. Absolutely. Because those are very different beasts. Absolutely. With, with a 24-hour weigh-in, there is a lot of flexibility. Yeah. If, you can if, get away with a lot. If someone wants to cut 10 pounds and they have a 24-hour weigh-in, fucking be my guess, man. Like That's not going to be a fun water cut, but like pretty much everyone's going to be able to pull it off. You got plenty of time to eat and rehydrate. Like You'll be fine. A 10-pound t- a water cut with a two-hour weigh-in? Who, buddy? No. Like, that, yeah. that's going to suck. And y- you might be fine later in the day by the time deadlifts roll around, but, like, s- squats aren't going to go well if you're water cutting that much. Yeah. Now, now the, the, one, the, the approach here that I would probably be least fond of, you know, the, the water cut, uh, again, th- we already talked about the factors that go into whether or not that's an advisable approach. Obviously, don't do anything stupid. Don't get yourself hurt. Don't end up in the hospital. I don't, I'm not fond of the idea of cutting for the first eight to 10 weeks and then just staying there for a while. I, 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 to me, that's kind of the worst of both worlds. You, you took the time and patience to go through the cut and then you just waited there for, for eight to 10 weeks and were kind of miserable. Um, I, in my opinion, that's kind of the, probably the least advisable approach. What I would often do for for most weight class sports um, is generally do a slow cut um, until you get within your comfortable striking distance for a water cut. So like for me, if, if I were to compete around, you know, 180 pounds, I, I personally wouldn't want to do a water cut of more than like three to five pounds. So what I would do is I would do a nice slow cut and I would time it up so it's nice gradual linear weight loss and kind of shoot for within, you know, maybe two weeks of the meet getting to my 
my comfortable weight that puts me in striking distance. I would do it two weeks before to just give myself some wiggle room because, you know, sometimes things happen and body weight is annoying. And you're like, oh, I didn't get there in time. So my approach would be generally do a nice, comfortable, linear drop. And once you get to that place where you're within a water cut striking distance, I would just chill there. But I wouldn't plan to get there too far out ahead because now you're just holding weight that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not your natural weight. It's not the weight that you enjoy being at. Yeah, and I think that I think that's another key consideration. Like you mentioned natural weight. I think that another important consideration is where you see yourself being weight-wise after the meet. So for example, if you're you know, if you weigh something and it's heavier than you would ideally like to be and you're thinking like you know, I want to move down a weight class and stay there and maybe eventually move down two weight classes because I have a considerable amount of fat to cut, then I would approach that differently than, you know, if if you're like quite competitive and your natural walking around weight is 215, but you compete at 205 in powerlifting, then, you know, after the meet, you're probably going to be getting back up to 215. And so, you you probably don't want to cut early and maintain an unnatural weight for multiple weeks leading into the meet, which which is far away from where you feel good and comfortable and then, you know, have to move back up after that. So if someone is like actually trying to decrease weight and wants to be like at the weight that their meat is at or below that weight for, you know, an indefinite period of time after the meet, then I would say go ahead and take care of the cut on the front end and go with that that option too, the slow cut for the first eight to 10 weeks and then maintenance after that. Because, you know, then at that point, kind of your true body weight is the competition weight. And if you want to keep moving lower after that, you know, then you're kind of taking what amounts to like a six-week diet break, competing at the top of that weight class and then continuing to move down after that. Um, that's a good point. Cause I answered under the assumption that, that you are not now just assuming a new body weight. Yeah. yeah I yeah. was under the assumption that you're, you're going back to normal after the meet. Yeah, for sure. Or, and, and if, if that is the case, like if the weight you compete at is below what your natural body weight is, and you're planning on getting back up to your natural weight after you compete, uh, then I very, very much agree with what Trek said. Okay, moving on to the next one from Alex. When you have pain during a certain exercise, how do you decide whether it's worth spending lots of time and effort rehabbing that movement slash body part versus just picking a different variation or an exercise uh, for the same muscle group that produces no pain? So basically, you're doing an exercise and it's bothering you, it's causing you pain. How do you decide when it's worth figuring it out and rehabbing your way through it versus just cutting and and moving on to something else to me at least it kind of depends what you're doing that movement for so for example for me i'm a power lifter my sport is squat bench deadlift and so like if squats cause me pain i still have to squat you know (laughs) like like, (laughs) yeah um, just hand them a note says i i don't go quite to parallel but it's fine my hip hurts yeah i mean so at at that point like if the movement is your sport or part of your sport then you gotta troubleshoot and figure out 
how to do it in a more comfortable way. Uh, maybe you would sub in like some some close accessory exercises that are going to cause you less discomfort like in day-to-day life, but also still do that exercise that causes you discomfort often enough that you can put up a good number on the platform. Um, but you're kind of you're kind of backed into a corner where like you got to do what you got to do. If on the other hand, you're not a power lifter, you know, maybe you're just a general strength enthusiast, or maybe you're a bodybuilder or a physique athlete, then like, dude, there's no exercises you have to have to do. If there's an exercise that you just love, and it causes you discomfort, you know, then you may want to troubleshoot it a little bit, certainly go to a physical therapist to see if they can help you out. But if you don't have like, an emotional attachment to a particular exercise, like just move on to something that's more comfortable. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, I think the answer to that question really strongly depends on why you're doing it in the first place. Like for me, like bench press hurts. I have like an old shoulder problem. Um, like my right shoulder is bone on bone. Bench press always hurts, but it's a third of my sport. So like I got to do it. Uh, <laughs> and there's really no way to make it not hurt. So, so like, yeah, I just got to suck it up. But like, were I not powerlifting, I'd probably never bench press again because there would be other ways to accomplish the same general adaptations of like pec and tricep hypertrophy and general pressing strength. So yeah, yeah, like if you don't have to do it, just, just sub something else in. If there's something else that accomplishes the same purpose and is more comfortable, if you do have to do it, then, you know, troubleshoot go to a physical therapist and and try to figure out a way to make it a little better yeah i mean i i totally agree the clients that i coach i always tell them we simply don't do accessory lifts that cause pain period if you're doing an accessory lift and you feel pain you cut it you know it's it's just not at all worth it to me now if it's like a primary movement that we've really programmed that training block around um then it gets more into, are we doing this because it was just plan A or is it because we compete in it? If we don't compete in it, we can probably find a very suitable, comfortable replacement. So the the only time that you ever really have to get serious and get back to the drawing board and figure out like we need to make this work is if you are f- literally going to compete in that exact lift. For everything else, it's negotiable. All right, so we've got a couple couple more questions to get to. Dan writes, um, I, I would love to hear you guys discuss the one or two things that you feel contributed most to your success in powerlifting slash bodybuilding, be it a mindset, aspect of training, aspect of nutrition, etc. You can so, you can lead off on this one. Um, <laughs> uh, success in so I, I haven't had any success in powerlifting, so I'm going to punt on that aspect. <laughs> I assume the bodybuilding part uh, is for me. Um, I think it, I want to preface this by saying I'm by no means a remarkable or successful bodybuilder, but um, I'm doing my best. And I think one of the things that's allowed me to stick with it over a long period of time is first of all there's got to be a lot of passion there bodybuilding is something that's intrigued me for a long time and i started lifting when i was 12 and just absolutely fell in love with it so even if i didn't compete in powerlift or uh, bodybuilding 
I would still probably lift a solid four or five times a week in perpetuity. Bodybuilding for me was just an outlet to be competitive and actually feel like it wasn't ridiculous that I was spending so much time in the gym. The only thing that I would say actually makes me successful in bodybuilding, I already mentioned this episode, I could be completely satisfied living the rest of my life eating only chicken, spinach, and maybe a small assortment of condiments and spices. The The one thing that's always intrigued me in the bodybuilding world is Dexter Jackson. Dexter Jackson, if you're not familiar, IFBB uh, pro bodybuilder. The Blade. The Blade is his nickname. He won an Olympia. And I'm always perplexed of like, how is he always in perfect shape? Always so, so lean every single time. If you go to Wikipedia and you look at his competition history, it is astounding. He's been competing for 111 years. And it's like every competition, he's top three against the best in the world. Yeah, and, and honestly, like that that is the defining thing about Dexter Jackson. Like he's he's never been the biggest guy on stage, but like the the only thing standing between him and winning shows is like the guys that are bigger than him, do they come in in shape? If they don't come in in shape, it's a free win because yep. he's always in shape. He will be. Like he and I dude's like like you said he's been competing for over 100 years. It, um, it's it's crazy. Every year you're like this is going to be the year he falls off. Yeah. It's not. He's he's quite old and especially by like pro bodybuilding terms like those guys don't have a long shelf life typically. They don't. They don't. But like dude's been at it forever and he brings a great package every single time. Like always on point. Yeah, but I remember you and I ages ago were discussing Dexter Jackson, and we were just kind of like, what the hell is going on? How is he this good? Always perfect. And you basically put forth the theory that he is just most capable of what bodybuilders call embracing the suck. You know, when when you're deep into a, a preparation for a competition, this is going to suck, and your food choices are going to suck. And you're going to be tired and lethargic and you're not going to feel good. And a pretty large part of success in bodybuilding is how, how do you face that challenge? Uh, physically, there's, there's really no choices to be made, but it, it kind of more mentally. Are, are you comfortable with that? And you, can you find some weird kind of fascination with it? And so for me, being a person who studies physiology, I think it's wild. I, I think it's kind of cool, to be honest. Um, it doesn't, that doesn't make it feel any better, but if I were to say there's anything that got me from being an absolute trash bodybuilder to an okay bodybuilder, it's the fact that loving it keeps me in the gym, having absolutely no food standards keeps my diet pretty <laughs> all right. Um, and then the fact that I genuinely have a fascination with all the crazy stuff that happens late in prep when your body is essentially like shutting down basically there's a few ways to view that not many of them are good but i think if you can somehow find a way to get some kind of fascination from it it makes it slightly more tolerable and you can embrace it and that's that's pretty much it for me fair for me and this probably isn't the answer that that dan was looking for um i mean like genetics (laughs) <laughs> like honestly <laughs> so i mean 
the the dirty secret here is that everyone who has attained a high level of of success in any sport was very genetically gifted for it um and like i mean i know how much work i've put in to get good at powerlifting but 99 plus percent of people could do the exact same stuff i've done and not ever lift the weights that i've lifted um so like yeah dude like i picked good parents and and i can admit that to myself and anyone who has attained like a similar level of success or more success that says that or like who won't admit that like having a really good genetic draw was a major part of that they aren't necessarily lying to you because they very well could believe the things that they're saying but they're mistaken like <laughs> they're they're either yeah. lying to you or or they're wrong but in a more innocent way um so yeah like i mean that that's the biggest thing by far and then past that i think one of the things that has helped me is like i'm a little crazy and don't really give that much of a shit about anything in the gym (laughs) and the times that i've made the most progress have tended to be the times that i've just had like some wild idea and it's like well, I don't know of anyone else doing this, so let's give it a shot. So, like, when I went from being, like, a good lifter to, like, a a quite good lifter was um, when I tried, like, Bulgarian-style training for the first time. Uh, So, like, inspired by Abhijayev's system he did with his weightlifters. And so um, I was working up to a max on some sort of squat and some sort of bench Uh, twice a day every day and then doing like bodybuilding or like athletic type work um, most days of the week as well like in a third workout and like I was told that that was bad and that I'd hurt myself (laughs) and burn out but like one of the things that helps me is like I'm a power lifter because I like lifting heavy shit and maxing is like the ultimate way of lifting heavy shit And so when I saw like, oh, there's a training system that revolves around maxing all the time, like, hell yeah, sign me up. Like, let me give this a shot. And like, I've never, I can't think of a time that I've loaded a weight on the bar that's, that scared me. And I think that that's a big thing as well. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people have mental blocks where they'll unrack something and it'll feel really heavy in their hands or feel really heavy on their back. And like they've just failed before they even attempt the lift. Uh, Like it just gets in their head or like they'll get scared of just seeing a weight on the bar. And realistically, like honestly, that just doesn't happen to me. The closest thing I can think of was when I was messing around one time with, um, I was using a heavy band set up like a slingshot. And like, if you guys don't know this, before like slingshots were a thing people did like literally the exact same thing but they would just take like a resistance band and like double it over and put it around their arms and it accomplished the same thing as a slingshot but mark bell found a way to like make a product for that and monetize it so good for him but yeah like a heavy band is going to give you a lot more assistance than a slingshot will so i was playing around with that one day and i mostly only used like the medium bands and with those i 
I would work up somewhere in like the low to mid 500s. But I put a heavy band on and got up like a little over six. And like that just wasn't a weight I'd touched before. So like when that was lifted out to me and I felt it in my hands, I could like feel the bones in my forearm flex a little bit. And that scared me. So <laughs> he felt your <laughs> he felt your bones bowing under the pressure, dude. Like that's that's a thing. Oh my um, god! It's not like super common, but occasionally you'll see like multiply bench pressers, like their forearm just snap in the middle oh, of a lift. Man. Um, and like they're generally safe because they work up to those really heavy weights like gradually over time. But I went from like never having touched more than like maybe 530 to like let's load six on the bar and so my bones were not adapted to that type of stress <laughs> um, and 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 that's literally the only time i can think of that i've even been like a little bit afraid of a weight uh and so like like i picked i picked good parents like everyone on my mom's side of the family is like super strong like whatever i did i was bound to at least have some level of success in powerlifting and then i i just don't have like the mental blocks affecting me that affect a lot of people because like i'm a little bit crazy and weights just don't scare me like it's either gonna go up or it's not and especially after doing bulgarian like i failed so many lifts that like i know how to bail i'm not gonna hurt myself failing a lift so like what's there to be afraid of you know yeah back in my powerlifting days i would bail on squats all the time I failed on squats all the time at, at like a commercial campus gym. And every time it was like the people around me very well intentioned thought it was like a catastrophe. Every time <laughs> it happened, I'm like, dude, this is just how it is now. <laughs> like, I'm just stupid. So I fail all the time. It's all right. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I understood their concern and I, I appreciated it because it was in, you know, it was good intentions. Like, dude, you OK? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I just drop bars a lot (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. um now when you were doing the the bulgarian method those three sessions a day how much time were you spending in the gym every day like the whole literally the whole day (laughs) um so i was working at mash elite performance at the time and there there would occasionally be um some people like coming in throughout the day for like one-on-ones but the the big times were like in the morning, like adults would come in before work. And then uh, the main the main coaching I was doing is like group coaching for like youth and like high school and some collegiate athletes. And they would be coming in from like three to six, six thirty, give or take. And so I would go in at like, 10 and like get a workout in from 10 to like 11 30 and then just like rest a little bit eat a little bit um start warming up again at like 1 15 and finish up uh just before three like before the three o'clock session was about to start and then i'd coach from like three to 6 30 and then um some days like the coaches would get like a group workout in after that. And that was more just kind of like bodybuilding, like pump type stuff, like get big, get jack. Uh, and sometimes my wife had an internship at a local newspaper. She would come in after work with her sister who was training for volleyball 
And so I was also like training them uh, and I'd be like training them and also doing their workout along with them. So I was in the gym every day between training and coaching from 10 a.m. to probably about 9 p.m., give or take. Uh, and, and of that time, probably eh, maybe like five hours of it was spent training four and a half, five hours. So like all day, every day. So there you have it. All all you have to do (laughs) if you want to be a good power lifter is pick the right parents and train about five hours a day and you should be there in no time. You know, honestly, man, I, I'm interested to see what would happen if there was ever money in the sport of powerlifting and people could like legitimately do it professionally like obviously there there is a finite amount of time in the day that one could train without just like way overdoing it and like eventually breaking down but you know if if like there was a nutrition staff to make sure your nutrition was always on point and like you didn't have to have a job because like powerlifting was your job. And so you have like plenty of time to like sleep and recover every night and like, you know, get like massage work every day or whatever, like have a, have a like recovery facility as part of like the powerlifting team facility you could go to. And then also like have time to get in like a solid four hours of training every day. I kind of think that numbers would just explode because, because that, that is, that's the only period in my life where I've had like a solid several months to live a lifestyle, even approximating that. And during that time, I probably made, so let me just think through this real quick. I put 170 pounds on my total in 10, 11 weeks. And I've put a grand total of, about 800 pounds on my total from the time I started training. So I don't know, man. I made like a quarter of the total progress I have ever made in my training career in like a two and a half month span when I just had a lifestyle that was crazy conducive to just training and recovering super well. So yeah, uh, that's just something I wonder. If, if my life consisted of something approximating like that three month span one what i would do and then two just in in the sport in general what performances and numbers would look like all right well i tell you what um if we severely slash all of my responsibilities pertaining to stronger by science i can uh, start training six hours a day and we'll see if it if it's if it can be replicated what if we ramped up your responsibilities related to stronger by science and i instead did that to see if my experience replicates honestly i'd actually prefer that (laughs) (laughs) i I like the work i do a hell of a lot more than i'd like training six hours a day all right i think that's probably a good place to uh, wrap it up for today now i mentioned all these questions come from a few different social media threads. We've got one on Facebook, one on Twitter, uh, one on Instagram. And when you introduce these, uh, one of our listeners, Steve, said, great, now I have stage fright and I can't think of anything now that he had the opportunity to ask a question. Well, Steve, uh, if you're hearing this, if that stage fright has dissipated, still feel free to ask a question. 
we, we are trying to keep those questions localized on those three threads on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, but yeah, we're going to keep looking back at those and referring back to them to uh, harvest questions for, for these Q&A shows. So if you listen to this and you liked it and think, eh, these guys seem competent enough to answer some of the questions I may be having, feel free to stop by those threads jot your questions down and we will get to them eventually and we will link those uh all three of those threads in the description of this episode so keep the questions coming and we will see you next time thanks for listening to the stronger by science podcast now greg and i are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter so before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.